On April 12th, 1945, Harry Truman received a message asking him to come to the White House, quote, as quickly and as quietly as you can. He left immediately thinking that the president had some special urgent job for him to do. To his surprise, when he arrived at the White House, he was ushered into Mrs. Roosevelt's sitting room. She got up, she put her arm on his shoulder and said to him, Harry, the president is dead. At first, it's said that Truman was just too stunned to speak. He didn't say anything for several moments. When he finally had his composure, he looked at Mrs. Roosevelt and asked, Is there anything I can do for you? And her reply was this. No, Harry. Is there anything we can do for you? Um, When the president, uh, President Roosevelt, breathed his last breath, there was immediately thrust upon the shoulders of Harry Truman this enormous weight of the presidency of the United States of America. And, and, and it's hard to become president at any time under any circumstances, but in particular with the death of a, the sitting president and also this happening during World War II. There were major decisions that had to be made with regard to Hitler and Japan and Stalin's, Stalin's maneuvering to, to, um, to position himself to be a major post-war factor, dominate that post-war world. And so all of the responsibility of this nation and the free world was suddenly thrown upon Harry Truman. President Roosevelt had been the longest serving president in American history. And though he was controversial, he was effective and he was a dominant president. The next day, as Truman stood before reporters, asked What it was like to receive this word. His response was this to reporters. I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. Well, in our text this morning, the great one-man army of Israel, Elijah, is taken away by God. And Elisha is handed this formidable task of of following one of the most powerful figures, not just in biblical history, but in human history. But Elisha begins on the right foot. He begins by asking the right question. And the question isn't, where is Elijah? What happened to Elijah? Or will there be another Elijah? The question, and the most important question, is there in verse 14, 2 Kings chapter 2. It's, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That was the big question. That, that, that Elisha didn't need another Elijah. Elisha needed God. And what Elisha needed, he had. God was there. And so I say when, one of the things that we'll see in this text this morning is that when one, or when God's leader is removed, everything of God remains. Everything of God remains. This is what this chapter is showing here. And there's a lot that we'll cover and it's going to seem like it's we're, we're just kind of bouncing along. And that how does this any of this relate? But this is the thrust of this 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 passage. It's God's great leader is going to be gone, but God's purpose for his people will not change. 
This is a this chapter two of Second Kings is a workshop on God's immutability. He doesn't change. His purpose is not thwarted. His power is his grace, his wisdom, his judgment. They all continue on. And so with Elijah's death, everything changed for the nation, and yet nothing changed. I mean, it's you can't you can't overestimate the significance that Elijah of of the role that Elijah played in Israel's history. Um, one commentator said Elijah was worth dividing over, and what what he was meaning is is to be on Elijah's side was to be on God's side. To be against Elijah to, was to be against God. I mean, this is dominant figure in Scripture. Moses and Elijah are the ones that show up at the transfiguration of Christ. And so with his death, everything changed, but nothing changed. It's clear as we open chapter 2 of Second Kings that, that the remnant of Israel, the faithful ones in Israel, are kind of on edge. They, they, they seem to know that Elijah's time has come. That's evident. But nobody's talking about it, at least openly. They're, they're talking behind Elijah, but nobody's dealing with the issue. There's just this air of suppressed tension in chapter 2 as it starts. I mean, and you think about it again. Elijah has, has stood up against the Baal-worshipping, prophet-persecuting regime. And, and he stood in the gap for the faithful of Israel. He was... The defense system for Israel. He was the iron dome of his time. But now Elijah is to be taken. How can, how can they go on? How can God's cause go on? The answer, again, is because God goes on. He doesn't change. He's still in charge. I say our hope for years to come is the God of the man, not the man of God. But we, we get this sense of just quiet dread that's hanging over these prophets, the faithful in Israel, with this anxiety over Elijah's departure. Look in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Kings. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were, there, were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord sent me as far as Bethel. So in a sense, what Elijah's Elijah, this is, I'm gonna, I may mix these two up. You want, please forgive me if you follow along. Elijah is testing Elisha's faithfulness. But, but also, this is an opportunity for Elisha to legitimately bow out. You, you don't have to follow in my footsteps. This is, this is hard. It's lonely. It's a battle. The enemies are num, numerous. Trials will be, will be many. And and you can stay here, it will be alright. But Elisha said with an oath, the solemn oath, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. On the on the one hand, he's just saying, Elijah, I'm not going to abandon you. I love you. I'm I'm not leaving you. But on the other hand, what's what he's saying is in essence, I'm ready to fulfill whatever God has called me to. And that's what we'll see. So they went down to Bethel. Verse 3, and the sons of the prophets, these sons of the prophets, this was, these aren't like flesh and blood sons of Elijah, but 
the, they're students of Elijah. This is a prophetic school. And, and as we'll see, this is basically what Elijah is doing. He's going back and visiting these, these schools of prophets before he departs. So the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? They're not asking just simply, do you know what today is? Do you know today is the day that Elijah leaves? That's not what they're asking him. The crux of their question is really one of succession. They're asking, are you ready to fulfill the role that God is leaving to you now that your master is going? Uh, are you up to the task? This is really the question. And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Same song, second verse, different prophets, same question, same intent with the question. And then, now the third verse, which is verse 6. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And then it says, So the two of them went on. There's, that's a change. There, it's no longer Elijah, Elijah the master and Elisha the little tag-along servant who washes his hands. It's now they leave for the Jordan together. They are, they are as equals in this sense, going to the Jordan. To understand what's going on in 2 Kings 2, you, you, you need to see something. And there's a school subject that some of you young people really love and some of you young people probably despise. Um, and it's geography. Geography is the glue that really ties this whole chapter together. Now, I want you to see this pattern that's, that's really key to understanding this text. And so what we've already seen is Elijah and Elisha, they're going together. They go from Gilgal to Bethel, farther inland, and they're starting to work their way back to Jericho and then to the Jordan. And then what we're going to see is Elijah by himself goes from the Jordan back to Jericho, back to Bethel, and then on to Samaria via Mount Carmel. And so what we're, what we're seeing, one of the things that's going to see, we're going to get to the strange little episode with the bears and the water later in this chapter, so just hold on. And uh, trust me, this bald guy's ready to get there. Um, but they're not out of place. They're not, they, they fit in this narrative. I know it seems like, why didn't he just end at verse 18, telling the story of Elijah's departure and Elisha's resuming of this role. But, but these scenes move us along this pattern. And then secondly, what, what this is doing is it's showing us that Elisha really does receive, and we're not there yet, I know, but that double portion of the Spirit that he asks for. Elisha retraces Elijah's steps exactly, speaking the same word that Elijah spoke, doing the same mighty deeds that Elijah did, showing that he indeed is the is the one who falls in succession of Elijah. So with Elijah, God's word and God's power are displayed. And with Elijah, 
Elisha, after Elijah's gone, God's word and his power continued to be displayed through the prophet Elisha. Elijah's gone. God's not gone. Everything, God's leader, uh, God, God's, when God's leader is removed, everything of God remains. That's all we're saying. And so the rest of the chapter then, and what, what we'll see this morning is the rest of the chapter shows us these, these anchors for the people of Israel that, that they can hold to despite the changing circumstances, despite this seismic shift in, in the nation with the departure of Elijah. What can they hold to? And the first thing, first anchor that we hold to is this, is that no matter what happens, God's power still reaches us. His power still reaches us. Look at verse 7. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. So they've gone Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho. Now they're at the Jordan. They stood some distance from them, and, they, and they, as they both were standing by the Jordan River. So Elijah, Elisha, standing by the river, these 50 prophets standing at a distance of spectators. Verse 8, Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side, to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Now, this wasn't like they got to the edge of the river and Elijah's thinking, hmm. How are we going to get across here? You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll try something. I, let me just see if this will work. This is not it at all. This is calculated. The, Elijah, by doing this, is demonstrating that he walks in the footsteps of Moses. He he rolls up his cloak like a staff, and then very Moses-like, he smacks the water, and the waters depart, very Red Sea-like, don't they? And so verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So Elijah said, Ask anything of me. And this is his reply, and it sounds kind of audacious, doesn't it? A double portion. I mean... It's, it's, it's like, all right, I've thought about it, and you're a prophet, so you really don't have much value. Uh, I know how you live. You don't really have anything. Um, so I guess if you could just give me a double portion of your spirit, that would be great. But, but listen, he's not asking to be twice as good as Elijah. He's not asking to be twice as powerful as Elijah. He's not asking to be twice as famous for God here. There's a, if you listen to Christian radio stations, you, there's an acting and modeling, Christian acting and modeling commercial that's always on. You want to be famous for God? And this is not what Elisha is asking of Elijah here. The, the, the double portion was the portion of the firstborn son. This is according to Deuteronomy. The firstborn son receives the double portion of of the inheritance. So what Elisha is asking is let me be as it were your firstborn son. Let me inherit your office. Let me let me be your heir. I want that firstborn portion of your spirit to rest on me. That's what he's asking. Verse 10. And Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. He doesn't mean, boy, that's that's a tough one for me to do. 
That's not what he's saying. It's, it's not just a tough thing for Elijah, Elijah to do. It would be an impossible thing for him to do because it was God's to do. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm not sure you know what you're asking for. This, I don't think you grasp the difficulty of being a prophet who operates by the power, by, in the power and spirit of the Lord. This is hard. This is, this is a hard road. This is a tough ministry. This is an impossible calling. And it's not mine to give. And he says, yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so for you. He's saying, ultimately, it's up to God. This is basically, you remember what Jesus told his disciples? Is there, who can sit on, can we sit on the right hand? Can we sit on the left? He says, to sit at my right hand, to sit at my left is not mine to give. It is for my Father in heaven to give. This is kind of what Elijah is saying to Elisha. So here's Elisha wanting to move into that ministry that Elijah has exercised. He wants to be used by God. He wants to carry on the fight. He wants to hold up the banner. He wants to, he wants to be a herald for the truth, a spokesman for righteousness. And, and, and that's what he wants. And in order for him to be that and to do that, he knows what he needs. He needs the firstborn portion of the spirit that Elijah has. He needs to be an heir of his. And then this most amazing thing happens. We'll tie it all together here in just a moment. Verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. What an amazing sight. Understated as it is here. I'm not sure if you realize this, but ascensions really aren't that common. (laughs) Um, I've probably not seen one in your lifetime, have you? Um, But he's taken up into heaven, it seems, body and soul. And Elisha's left standing there alone. Now, you put yourself in Elisha's shoes for just a moment. Um, You've just watched this absolutely amazing, spectacular uh, miraculous display of power as God has taken Elijah away. And you might think Elisha is standing there going, Wow! Woohoo! You know, just, uh, yes, I've never seen anything like this. This is, in, this is incredible. But look at Elisha's response. Verse 12. And Elisha saw it. And he cried My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. He's doing. He's grieving. He's grieving. His heart is knit with Elijah's and God takes him away. This he 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 looked to Elijah like Timothy would look to Paul as his father in the faith. He stands there grieving, crying out, my father. My father. And he says, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's not, he's not talking about Elijah's mode of transportation. That's not what he means. He's using that expression as a title for Elijah. He was the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He, he, he's, he's saying that 
That's what Elijah was. The chariots, horses, those are vehicles of war, symbols of, of triumph. He, later, in 2 Kings 13, Elisha himself will be called by the king, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So this is a title. And so not only is his spiritual father gone, my father, my father, but, but the one-man army of Israel is gone. The one who courageously took the battle to the front lines time and time again. The one who patiently stood firm for God's cause. The one who relentlessly battled in the faith. The one who, who boldly wielded the sword of the Spirit. The one who stood down kings without fear. The one who called down fire from heaven. Elijah's grieving. How can God's cause go on? How can truth, the cause of truth, go on? Our chariots are gone. Our horsemen are gone. My father is gone. Look, at, look, you see this grief in his response. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. So, so Elisha's grieving. But let's not forget about Elijah. Where's Elijah? He's with the Lord. He's in heaven. He's beholding God. He's enjoying the very presence of God. So Elijah's, one man enters glory, one man's left grieving by the river. But this one man army has a successor. And as Elijah goes up, something falls to the ground. Look at verse 13. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now don't think that this was accidental. Don't think this was just a matter of pure physics with the whirlwind and all. His cloak just kind of accidentally flew off of Elijah and happened to fall by Elisha. No, this is the firstborn portion being left to the sun. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? You know, you know what he's saying. He's has the God of Elijah given me the double portion? Does the spirit of Elijah rest on me? He said, if I, if, 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 if I saw him go, I'd get that firstborn portion. Well, I saw him go. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And so like Elijah done just moments before again, he rolls up the cloak, he smacks the water. And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over, just, just like before. Just like Joshua was authenticated as the successor of Moses by the parting of the Jordan River, so was Elisha authenticated as the successor of Elijah by the parting of the Jordan River, passing on dry ground. And I have a feeling that as those waters separated, and as he walked through that again by himself on dry ground, some of that grief began to dissipate. He understood what had taken place. So verse 15, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them across, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. The sons of the prophets watched, watched Elijah Smack the water and the waters divide. And they, and, and they see Elisha do the exact same thing without Elijah at his side. And so 
again, what Elijah has done, Elisha does. And they get the point. The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. God's power has not ceased with Elijah's departure. Yahweh's power is still active through Elisha. And so this is one of the things we see here. Again, God's power still reaches us. God's power does not have a shelf life. God is not limited to certain, a certain era in history, biblical or, or world history. And, and, and one of the things we know, the, the events of verses 8 to 14, they reenact those events found in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 that I was mentioning. So what we see is the God of 1400 BC is just as strong in 850 BC. He's just as powerful. Yes, Elisha's day is very different from Joshua's day. There were different cultural dynamics. There were different, there was a different political situation, dramatically different. But this text shows it doesn't matter. The God of the Bronze Age is the God of the Iron Age and is the God of the Digital Age. God's power still reaches us, church. He, he does work in unique ways at different times in, in, in history. But, but the same God is just as powerful as He was then. He is today. The God who worked so powerfully at Pentecost and during the Reformation and during those, those great 18th century revivals, He's still saving and sanctifying people today. Here, in Croatia, Senegal, around the globe. He's still working. He's still protecting us from the evil one. He's still opening new doors for the gospel. He's still bringing in a harvest of souls. He can still revive this church. He can revive your heart. The one, one writer said the historical God is the contemporary God. He's the same. His power is the same. He works in different ways and different dispensations, but he's the same God. It's the same power. Secondly, God's power can flow through all kinds of instruments. Elijah and Elisha, two very different kinds of instruments. And we'll see that as we learn more of Elisha. But their power and their effectiveness is not, is not dependent upon them. It's on God. He works through them. And realizing this should do a number of things. A couple of things, I would say. One, it should keep us from, from idolizing certain servants of God. Some of us, we want to we want to idolize these dead servants of God, some of these reformers and and some of these maybe biblical figures or church fathers. And but but we shouldn't do that or even contemporary servants. We don't lift them up. It's God that we need to be seeing. And 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 also it should keep us from thinking that God can't use us. His power is available and to work through us. God delights, Paul tells the Corinthians, in using weak, foolish, low despise nothings just like you and me. He does it to show to, 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 so that the boasting will be in the Lord alone. He, he delights in using us. Treasures in jars of clay. That's what we have this treasure of the gospel in these weak earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is God's power still reaches us. The, our help is in the Lord it's not in the personality, ability, social status, IQ, or charisma of his servants. It's in God. And this teaches us God's leaders change. God's power does not change. And this is a great hope and encouragement for the sons of prophets and for the faithful 
in Israel to see. It was so important for them to see this. And it's recorded for us so that we are reminded of this. Second thing. So God, God's power still reaches the second anchor that God's people needed then and we need today is that God's wisdom still helps us. Still helps us. Wisdom is so important. And Elisha has it. Now the, the sons of the prophets will see they don't recognize it yet. But look at verse 15, the second half of verse 15. And they came to meet him and they bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So they're saying, basically, we want to go look for his body. We, 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 we think he's probably just been thrown in a valley, thrown, it's probably just scattered somewhere. And we want, to, we want a body to bury. I mean, this is sincere. They had such regard for Elijah. But Elijah, Elisha said to them, you shall not send. Verse 17, but when they urged him till he was ashamed, they just keep pleading. He said, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, I told you so. Well, he was a little kind. He said, did I not say to you, do not go? This little episode is here. He said, why is this here? This little episode is to show the sons of the prophets and us that, that Elisha knows what he's talking about. He not only possesses God's power... He possesses God's wisdom. Wisdom. Just as God's power didn't die with Elijah, neither did God's wisdom. And wisdom will not die with us either. Or with anybody. God, God still gives wisdom. He continued to give it to in, in Israel's day, in this dark day of Israel. And he continues to give it today. You know, power impresses us more than wisdom, doesn't it? It does. We, wisdom isn't one of God's flashier gifts. It's quiet. It's, it seems ordinary to us. God's power makes big waves, big splash. God's wisdom is it's, it's calmer. But it's not less important. Wisdom, wisdom is openly available to us. James 1.5 says you, you do not have because you do not ask. And so he says ask for wisdom. And, and, and in that context he says it's wisdom... Not strength that allows you to endure through trials. You need wisdom. So it's available to us, but we often don't ask, do we? We don't seek it. We, we may pray. This is one of the ways this, we can see this about ourselves. We pray earnestly for someone who's been diagnosed with cancer in the church, and we should. And, and then sometimes a scan comes back and there's no sign of cancer, and we we rejoice and we should rejoice and thank God for the, the power of God to, to heal this brother or sister. And yet, and yet, then we hear about a husband and wife and they've, they've, they've decided to cut up their credit cards, throw them away, and to, to begin to slowly, methodically pay off debt and get themselves in a better financial situation so they can give more and we hear about that and we yawn. It's not power. It's, it's, it's only wisdom. But, but that's not how God sees it. Um, 
Wisdom is a tremendous gift of God. Proverbs 2, God's wisdom is better than riches. And God continued to give wisdom in in Elisha's day just as he did to Elijah. And he continues, that doesn't change. God's wisdom is still available. Third thing we see, third anchor, this, this immutability of God. God's grace still surprises us. His grace still surprises us. Elisha's at Jericho, just west of the Jordan River, a bit above the north end of the Dead Sea. And there's a problem in Jericho. Verse 19, now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of the city is unpleasant. As my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Literally, the the idea of the language here is that literally the land suffers from miscarriages. The, the, The water supply is apparently so toxic that it's killing people. It's causing miscarriages of animals and and humans. The land, I think, is the occupants of the land, livestock and people. Verse 20, he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now, the salt is, I know it's kind of a strange little scene, new bowl, salt, and all this. But don't miss this. It's the word of the Lord that really changes things. See that? So, so God's word brings transforming grace to God's people. That's the, what I want to see. And you think, okay, that's nice. So God is gracious to just give them clean drinking water when they didn't have it before. No, there's, there's a lot more to the story here. And, and I just have to be brief. But the location is very important. Jericho. You remember Jericho, 1 Kings, and we'll see before. After Israel's conquest of Jericho, Joshua pronounced a curse Upon this city and upon any man who would dare to rebuild this condemned place. It wasn't to be rebuilt. It's Joshua 6.26. And uh, we just can't go there right now. I need to pedal fast. But you remember in the dark days of Ahab, nobody gave the rip for what God said, did they? And so what happened? There was this building contractor that thought he was up to the task. And he decides to rebuild Jericho. And his name was Hiel. And this is in 1 Kings 16.34. And he built, rebuilt, the, um, rebuilt the city. And, and you remember he sacrificed two of his sons just as Joshua promised would happen. It would be at the expense of their own sons' lives. And he sacrificed two sons. So there's two graves that serve as this monument of this reconstruction work under the gate and under the wall and under the foundation. And so what we're seeing is Jericho was this, was this cursed place. Curse was pronounced there. A curse was was inflicted there. It's it's cursed town. That's that's what people. That's what Jericho was supposed to be thought of. Cursed town. And so that's the backdrop of verses nineteen to twenty two. And so this city that's under a curse now through Elisha receives this blessing of grace, and he turns their awful toxic water into fresh water that is drinkable. Doesn't cause death any longer. Cursed town becomes Graceville through Elisha's word. The destructive word now enjoys this healing word. And isn't that a little snapshot of the Lord's character? 
doesn't need delight in taking the most curse-ridden, sin-laden, judgment-bearing situations and, and turning them into episodes of His grace. And we know this from experience. We know this from this text. And that's great news for us today, isn't it? No matter what you've done, no matter what, what, how you've messed up, how messed up your life is, no matter uh, what kind of guilt and shame you think are just hovering around you and are hovering around your life as you're even here sitting there this morning, this dark cloud, you can go to Jericho, metaphorically, and behold your God. It's amazing grace. They did not deserve this. They asked. They received, not because they deserved it, but because of God's grace through his word. He he is the God who gives grace to the undeserving. He binds up, as Isaiah says, the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. His grace still amazes us today, doesn't it? And we're going to behold that as we come to the table. Last thing, God's judgment still sobers us. We finally get to the bald man, the bullies, and the bears here. And um, what in the world is going on here? Does is, is he need to just lay off the decaf or stick the decaf or something? Uh, verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was, again, he's retracing the steps that he and Elijah had made. And while he was going up on the way, some boys, some small boys came out from the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them, 42 of the boys. Body parts everywhere. A few things, real quick, just to help us. Why Bethel? Bethel was the center of cultic activity. This is where Jeroboam had built and placed the golden calf. It was the epicenter of apostasy in the land. What about these kids? Now, he says small boys. Don't think we walkers. Don't think little boys up here on stage earlier. These, these are, this could mean anything from a newborn to a young man. So I just, this is a group of young thugs. That's the idea. This, and it's a large mob. Forty-two of them were mauled, but it just says 42 of them. So there were others that got away unharmed. So this is a large group of thugs. And, and these are, they're in opposition to God's word, to God's prophet. And most likely that just reflected their, their parents' hostility towards the Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment. Third, notice how calculated their acts were. They, they go out of this city. The city was a walled city. And so they go, they gather together, they assemble together, go out the town gate and meet Elisha on the road in order to accost him. And so, so this is, this is not just as he's walking through town and they just, you know, start spontaneously mocking him because he's bald. That's not it. He, they, they, this is premeditated. This is malicious. Fourth, what is their mockery all about? They say, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. As much as I hate to admit it, it's not a proof text that can be used against making bald jokes. As it sounds, I wish it could be. And I, wish, and I tell my kids, they better watch out for bears because they, they make enough <laughs> jokes about their dad. Uh, they call him Baldy because he has no hair. Let's just, we, that is, that's obvious. And when you don't have hair, it's just something people notice. I can speak from experience. Um, and so, so these thugs are calling him Baldy, and it probably looked funny to them because Elijah seemed was hairy. Probably was. He wore hair, dressed hairy, 
probably had a bushy head of hair and beard. And here's Elisha following in his steps. But the, the real the real sting of their jeering is not the bald head part. That's just mockery. It's the go up part. Now that, that could mean a couple of things. It could mean go up like Elijah. Sin like Elijah. Go up in a whirlwind. You go up like the hairy prophet, bald head. Or it could mean go up to Bethel. Worship at the pagan altars. Before the golden bull. Or it could just mean go up and keep going up. Get out of town. You're not welcome here. Beat it. And I, and I think that's the idea of the text. And it, the word go up is used earlier in verse 23 two times. It's the same word. He went up from there to Bethel. And he was going up on the road. And I think they're, what they're saying is basically, we don't want you or God's word here. It was just, just defiant obstinance. We want nothing to do with God or his word. And so, get out of here. And so there, there, this is contempt, this is hostility towards the Lord's prophet. In mocking the prophet, they mock God. In rejecting the prophet, they're rejecting the Lord. And Elisha turns around and texts us, curses them in the name of the Lord. Now, don't read your Bible as if he turns around in an anger, red face, and screams, you dirty, rotten, beep, 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 you know. That's not, that's not it. He's, this is a covenant curse. He's a, he's a covenant prosecutor calling down a curse on these this young mob of idolaters. And these bears that come out and maul them are covenant bears. Deut- Leviticus 26, 22. It says, And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. This covenant infidelity in the land brought this covenant curse on these, these youths. So this is not some edgy, immature, irritable, short-fused, can't-take-a-joke prophet. This is a judging God. And, and, and what's the significance of this strange little episode? We have to take the whole chapter in real quick. Elijah is, the, is, is God's appointed successor. Elisha is God's appointed successor of Elijah. And so what we've seen is that Elijah has, Elisha has God's power, just like Elijah did. Elisha has God's wisdom, just like Elijah did. Elisha speaks God's word, both in grace and in judgment, just like Elijah did. And so you, you, you connect verse 23 and 24 with 19, and 22, 19 to 22, and God's word brings both healing, deliverance, and it brings judgment. It's a double-edged sword. But one of the things this should instruct to us is setting your life against God is no laughing matter. And I speak to you young people, just real quick. Are you a mocker in the making? Are you setting your life against God, against the things of God? The Bible talks a lot about the fool in the book of Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool scoffs at God, scoffs at the things of God. And the scriptures say the fools are doomed to their folly. It's a miserable existence, a thin facade of happiness, but it's fleeting. Don't, don't become a fool. Don't become a mocker. Don't set your life in a direction that runs against God and His people and His word. God does not take it lightly when people regard Him lightly. And, I, and I'd say to parents, again, how did these thugs develop such a hatred for God and His word? Now, they're born at enmity with God. We talked about that earlier. But, but their natural bent was bolstered probably in the home. 
I say we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We can unintentionally create mockers and disre- who disrespect God and His Word. Now, I'm not saying that you can be a perfect, you can be this perfect parent and guarantee children who love and fear the Lord. That's not it at all. But I'm saying we can do things that make it very easy for them to be mockers. A few ways. By regularly and unnecessarily removing yourself from the Lord's Day Assembly. I'm speaking to the choir here. I know you're here. But if your children see, we respect, respect is, we value, uh, we regard highly things we respect. And if this is not important, children see it. By speaking of Christian duties as burdensome drudgeries, like the prophets and Mal- the priests in Malachi's day, this is a tiresome task. So your, your kids hear you whine over lunch about the sermon length. Don't do it, see? I'm just getting you here. Or the music or something else. So you, you get your kids up. We have to go to church today as opposed to we get to go and worship the Lord today. That's not just semantics. If kids pick up on that stuff. They mean things. By modeling a hypocritical external life, your, your kids see you put on the Sunday faces and then they know that you go home and live like God means nothing to you. Really? Mockers in the making. By boiling Christianity down to Pharisaic rule following, you just turn it into a checklist of rules. Just do this, don't do this. Our preferences become rules. And you neglect the most important thing, loving God, enjoying Him, delighting in Him, trusting Him, worshiping Him, being thankful and happy in Him. Your kids see that. So Elijah's taken, but nothing's, nothing's missing. Elijah's gone, but the Lord remains. His power, his wisdom, his grace, his judgment hasn't changed. And, and Elisha would receive the double portion. He would become the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You know, Jesus' disciples felt, in a sense, the same thing Elisha felt when Elijah departed. On the night before the Lord was taken, they're, they're struggling like this. And, and here's God's answer to the next generation, to his disciples and even to us. It's, I, I give you my spirit. I give you my spirit and full measure to carry on the work God calls you to do, to continue the battle in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. Acts 1.8, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power to, to be my witnesses. That's God's answer as we continue to pick up the baton and press on in the race. We stand here today. 2,750 years after Elijah and Elisha, 2,000 years after our Lord ascended. And yet we stand in this great succession of the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit in us. We have a job to do. We have a ministry to fulfill. We have have a calling to follow. We have a truth to herald. We have another generation to prepare and train. Baraka, we have work to do. God has not called us to just wait around until we die or until Christ returns. He's given us His Spirit from on high so we can continue the work that Jesus has left for us. We have this great responsibility to make disciples of all nations, not just to come and listen to a sermon or two every week, but to, 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 again, make disciples of all nations in the power of His Spirit. And I pray that as as this generation, even as my generation, fades off the scene. I pray that my children, my, my grandchildren will, be, will say, Oh, how I want a double portion of the Spirit that God gave to you. 
I want that. We want to be warriors for the truth, faithful to the Lord, heralds of righteousness, those who, who show the love and compassion of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Follow in your footsteps. And, I, and, and some of these little boys and girls, these are going to be the future leaders of the church, maybe of this church. That would be great to see future elders right here. And we can look back on this morning. And, and, and so with that in mind, my, my prayer is that this, the next generation of this church, the, the faithfulness of that next generation will succeed the faithfulness of my generation and the generation that precedes me. That, we're, we're, we, that we wouldn't get stuck in just maintenance, but we would say, God, how can we be used by you? Help us to do more. Let's pray. Father, I do pray, God, that you would, um, in the face of changing circumstances in our own day and our own culture in the, in the world and with all of the threats and all the hostilities and all the uncertainties, globally, nationally, locally, and then personally, we all have our own turbulence that we're going through right now. God, I pray that you would help us to see and to cling to these anchors of the of the constancy of your power and your wisdom and your grace and your judgment even, Lord, that we would fear you, that we would, we would see you as unchanging, as immutable, God, in the midst of an ever-changing world, that we would have then the boldness to carry on the mission that you've, you've called us to. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.